0: Alright, we're going to waste no time in getting to our first guest today, and with no disrespect to any of our previous professionals we've had on the podcast, I don't think I've ever been more excited than I am now to speak to a special guest. Honestly, this guy's a footy genius, he's a former opposition analyst and strategy coach, worked with North Melbourne, Geelong, Adelaide, and most recently Essendon. He's known as the Monday mechanic on SEM with Bob and Andy, but today he'll be our Tuesday teacher. It's the one and only Mr. Rob Harding. Welcome Rob, thanks so much for uh, having a chat mate.
1: Uh, Beautiful intro, thanks very much for having me, I really appreciate it
0: No worries, so what does the life in uh, lockdown look like for Rob Harding? What's occupying your time during this period?
1: Yeah, it's obviously a difficult period for everyone, isn't it, at the moment? Uh, I've been spending a fair bit of time studying, so I'm doing a bit of work in the fitness space just to uh, add another skill set to the coaching stuff that I've done previously Um, and also obviously keeping up with uh, all the the footy trends at the moment so uh, lockdown does give you a great opportunity to watch a fair bit of footy Um, not that I've needed any excuse over the last 12 years, but (laughs) Uh, Certainly able to watch every game and do a fair bit of work for that. And as you mentioned, doing a bit of media stuff as well, which I'm really enjoying.
0: Brent, what about the guitar? I heard you're giving that a crack too.
1: Yeah, the guitar's taking a little backseat at the moment. I got a puppy about six weeks ago, and the puppy's taking all my attention at the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, I fear that if I bring the guitar out in front of the puppy, he's going to chew on it, which... Would be disappointing to lose the guitar, and also disappointing that it would probably make a better sound than I can with it. So, I uh, just have to live with that. <laughs>
0: there you go. Um, can you explain your journey um, to landing a position in the in the AFL industry? How how did that come about?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to do a different background from a lot of people. I just stopped playing at a pretty young age due to injury. I hurt a hip pretty badly when I was 15, and that's give the game away. Drifted away from footy for a few years. Uh, went and did some study. And then found myself uh, working in the media for a little bit, producing radio shows. And through that, I got to know Nathan Thompson, who was playing at North Melbourne at the time. He was a guest host on a show that I was producing. And uh, he told me about a job one day looking after stats and video at North Melbourne. And uh, I went for that job. was fortunate enough to get it. And that really gave me my intro into the AFL industry. From there, uh, I had the opportunity to start doing some opposition scouting uh, after the previous opposition analysts left to go to Richmond from North Melbourne So that gave me a chance in 2010 That was the first opportunity I had to do opposition scouting And that was an area that I was interested in When I, when I saw it happening firsthand. Uh, before I started doing it I really just loved it It, it fit my skill set pretty well I've got an analytical brain So i got a pretty good footy brain And I uh, was able to sort of combine it all together and, and head down that path
0: Yeah brilliant And how old were you when you, when you first got that job at North Melbourne?
1: Uh, it would have been 22, I think it was. Oh, yeah. yeah,
0: Nice. So what does an, an average week look like for an opposition or a strategy coach, like a Monday to Friday? What what sort of things are you doing around the club?
1: Yeah, it's a constant balance between the current week and the next week. So um, from, say, a Monday, I would be finishing up uh, the scouting for this week's game. So let's say that this week the club I was at was playing Hawthorne. Uh, I would finish off on a Monday watching probably the, the last of the vision compiling together my report. So I'd come up with about a 30 or 40 slide presentation for the coaches, and uh, we drill that down to about a five-slide presentation for the players for later in the week. Uh, we'd sit down on, say, a Tuesday. I'd take the coaches, the rest of the coaching staff, through um, probably 15 minutes' worth of vision, all the key points they need to know for the week, including the clips that I'm going to show to the players later on in the week, any information that was relevant around the team, the style of play, what they like to do in certain circumstances how they're going to set up from a stoppage perspective and what to watch out for for each of the coaches for their minds. Um, obviously, the assistant coaches watch a bit of footy, but don't get to watch it in the detail that um, an opposition strategy coach does. So I would uh, make sure we detail that with the coaches, present to the players on, say, a Wednesday. And then from Thursday, which would be the day off, I would start looking at the next week's game. So the back end of the week, that sort of Thursday, Friday, into a game day on a Saturday, You've got part of your head in the next week's opponent and part of your head in this week's opponent to make sure we get the, the job done this week. So it's constantly throughout the season just finding that balance between this week and the next week.
0: And you mentioned you you, you worked for North and I believe you went to Geelong, Adelaide and then most recently Essendon. Which would you say was your most enjoyable? Uh,
1: it's, it's hard to split them because they all had different things that, that I really liked. Um, North Melbourne obviously was my first job. Out of it. we had a pretty young staff. I've uh, still got lifelong friends out of working at North Melbourne, Geelong. I was fortunate enough to be there for a premiership in 2011, so that's you know the highlight of anyone's career when you get to experience that sort of feeling of winning an AFL premiership or being part of it. Um, Adelaide was the club I spent the longest at, so five years at the Crows, and we went through some real heartbreak there. You know, we had Dean Bailey pass away in 2014, and Phil Walsh pass away in 2015, and the period between 2012, 13, and 14, when. Um, prior to when Bales passed when it was Brenton Sanders as the coach, Mark Bickley, Scott Camparelli, Darren Milburn, Bales and I were the, the big part of the coaching staff and we were all really close, we got on well, we loved working together and I still speak to those guys um, regularly, uh, I still think about Bales probably every every day or every mm-hmm. second day, um, he's an important person in my life and um, you know, I love those guys, they're like brothers and um, I really loved my time um, working there at the Crows, particularly that little period there. Um, and Essendon, I met some great people as well, and some fantastic players that were great, fun to work with, and whose progress I'll follow um, into the future. So I can't split them up. They all had a great points, but um, the little period at Adelaide, the twelve, thirteen, fourteen, 13, was probably my favourite.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. And obviously, during that time, you worked for a few different interesting and um, professional head coaches. Who, who would you say is the most difficult to, to work under?
1: It's a a tough question to answer. They all have their um, idiosyncrasies, and I think the big part working with any senior coach is finding the best way to communicate with them and what level of information they need and how they need it delivered to them. Um, These guys uh, are dealing with an incredible volume and breadth of information on a daily basis. Um, They're being talked to about things from membership and marketing to media um, through to everything to do with coaching, high-performance... Um, psychologists, doctors, you know, they're dealing with everyone. It, it's the biggest management job within a football club and the most high-pressured. So, um, you have to communicate with them differently. How I communicated with Dean Laidley at North Melbourne was different to how I communicated with Brad Scott. How I communicated with Brenton Sanderson was different to how I communicated with Phil Walsh or Don Pike at Adelaide. So, um, there's a lot of differences. Walsh was a funny one. Like He came in and his mentality was, if someone's not good enough at their job, then I'll just do their job for them. He was a real workaholic and um, that was his attitude. You had to really earn his trust. And uh, I was really fortunate and grateful that I did earn his trust um, reasonably quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw the game pretty similar, which was nice. And, um, you know, some of the conversations we had in the weeks before he passed away um, about where I was at and my future and, and what he would do to help me going forward um, were things that meant a lot to me. So um, none of them more difficult than the others. You just have to find the best way to communicate with them.
0: You, you just mentioned before earning, earning trust. Was it harder for you because you didn't play AFL um, in the past or was that never, never talked about or you never thought that anyone held that opinion, that you wouldn't know what you were doing?
1: I think that people would hold that opinion potentially with me until they heard me start to speak about the game. And I think I did have to maybe work a little bit harder to earn their trust. But I, I sort of took it as, you could view that as a negative that you might get looked at differently because you didn't play at the highest level. Um, One thing I was really clear on was I've never spoken to a player or a coach who professed to know what it's like to be out there. Um, If you want to get a a great opinion on what it was like to play 300 AFL games, then go and speak to a 300 AFL game player. Um, My weapon, so to speak, was that I've watched and been involved and analysed more games than just about anyone in the industry over the last 10 years. Um, That's what I hang my hat on. So I never tried to be anything that I wasn't and um, that, I think, made it easier to earn trust um, with people. The other side of it that I liked and the mentality I took was that if I've had to work harder to earn people's trust, if I'm really bad at my job or I say something completely ridiculous, I'll lose that trust quick. I don't have any credits in the bank. Um, a 300-gamer could make a few wrong calls and probably get more latitude than I'm going to get. So it kept me sharp and focused and on my toes, and I took that as a positive. I had to be really accurate all the time. There's no room for mistakes. Um, And that was the mentality I've always had um, with my scouting, and that's why I I put so much time into it. Um, And I think that worked well for me in the end.
0: You've obviously uh, seen, this is the last one on on your past before we get to today's footy, but you've obviously seen a fair few things behind the scenes that an average footy fan probably wouldn't be privy to. Are there any insightful or funny stories you could could share about the inner sanctum of, of, of the footy club?
1: I think, um, look, you know, over the four clubs and, and the last 12 years, I've seen, I think, just about everything that you can <laughs> see inside a, a coach's box or yeah. um, inside a footy club. But, and being involved again at local level in recent years, uh, my local club, it, it reminded me that it's really not too dissimilar. Like, at AFL level is the, Phil Walsh called it the Formula 1 of footy. You know, it's the yeah. best of the best and the elite. But at the end of the day, it's still... Um, people coming together with a common goal, um, people trying to get the best out of themselves and trying to enjoy the journey doing it and trying to be successful um, along the way. So um, there's elements that you would come into an AFL club and it would just look like your local um, footy club. Um, guys, bantering in the rooms, guys putting up a funny video or pictures in a meeting or something like that. Uh, that's the stuff that um, makes footy clubs great at any level and it's the same at AFL levels. So... Um, that's one of the things I love about the most that AFL clubs are fully professional and fully serious but there's still a time to have fun and those are the best environments
0: yeah nice Uh, so let's get to to today's uh, state of the game and you've obviously had a few opinions on this I've seen um, previously and uh, especially the holding the ball interpretation so what is your current opinion on the state of the game and the new holding the ball interpretation that's been brought in uh, over the past week
1: Yeah, I think in terms of the holding the ball, uh, there's been a real um, issue with the difference between what Alistair Clarkson spoke about two weeks ago and what's actually been implemented. Clarko spoke about incorrect disposal, so a player's got the ball in time and space, had prior opportunity, could have kicked, could have handballed, chose not to, gets tackled, the ball spills out and we just let that play on, Um, as opposed to the ones where a player grabs the ball or gets handballed the ball is tackled immediately and just wrapped up. And the area that has been focused on in recent weeks is um, not making enough attempt or not no genuine attempt to get rid of the ball. Um, I don't think that's an area that we should focus on too much. And for the reason being that the player who has the ball should be given priority at all times. So if you've got the ball and you haven't had prior opportunity, I'd be happy to see that it's paid a ball up. Um, if your player's had prior opportunity and then gets tackled, and doesn't dispose of the ball properly, that should be holding the ball, and that's where we can reward the tackler. Uh, For me, rewarding the tackler should be the second part um, to uh, rewarding the ball, looking after the ball carrier first. Um, In terms of the general state of the game, we clearly have a a more defensive focus over the last 10 years. Um, There's been evolutions of the defensive press that have taken the game in that direction. I think we need to encourage more offence and more creativity in the game. I'm on record as saying that I think there should be a bonus point The score's over 100 when we go back to 20-minute quarters and a normal season. You saw the way Carlton attacked uh, the other night when they just ticked over the 100 in short quarters, which is a great effort. Uh, But it'd be great to see teams take the game on more. We need to find ways to reward that. And I feel that the media and the football industry has a responsibility as well to um, judge coaches harsher on not implementing attacking game plans. Mm -hmm. And too often it's easy to criticise a coach and... The last thing you want to be labelled as a coach is not having um, a, a strong defensive philosophy. It's the easiest thing to tag a coach with um, and something that's hard for them to shake. We should be encouraging them to have a balance between attack and defence. And I don't think there's rule changes too much that will create offence. I think we've had a problem in the last 10 years where we've tried to change rules to create a certain style of game. It just doesn't happen that way. It has to be a philosophical um, thing from club land and from coaches in particular.
0: Mm. And just on the, on the way that the game does look recently, do you think that would be more appealing if, because um, I read a, a report recently that the theory was that the way the game is broadcast and the different camera angles used, that's the explanation for the, you know, so-called ugliness of the game. You've obviously seen every camera angle you know, possible over your time. Uh, do you think different camera angles would make it more appealing even if it was a defensive uh, sort of game?
1: It's a great question, James. I have thought about this a bit across the journey, and I did see it referenced um, last week. There's certainly, when you see the game broadcast only on TV and it's shot real tight, and particularly this year, and I don't know if it's been a directive or not, but it certainly feels like it's been shot tighter this year mm. to take away the background shot of there being no crowd for a lot mm. of the games. Um, that makes it look more congested and makes it look a lot uglier. Um, I'd certainly, as a viewer and someone that loves the game, I'd love to see them pull the camera back a little bit and show a bit more from behind the goals. From a coach perspective, 90% of what you educate the players with is behind goals footage because it allows you to see the full ground, see the spacing and see the movement as it unfolds. Um, coaching has got better at coaching the off-the-ball decisions, whether that's in attack or defence, and that's what's allowed the team defence um, to evolve so much and to be so well-drilled. Um I think the way the game is shot does have a real impact on the way that people perceive it. Um, It's always very different when you go and watch it live. And I encourage people, when we are allowed to go back to watching games live... Go to a game and sit up behind the goals and watch it, and look at the spacing between players, and that's that's how clubs view it, yeah. um, and it's really important.
0: You recently, I was really interested when you when you were talking about this. You recently debunked the theory that kicking backwards resulted in lower scores or that boring footy, and uh, you know because of these these boring games that have happened, people have called for you know play on when it's kicked backwards or sixteen versus sixteen. Can you explain the theory that kicking backwards actually doesn't result in lower scores?
1: Yeah, it was an interesting one. I think when the the discussion quickly came up about kicking backwards, I've spent a long time inside footy clubs and you're not really allowed to comment too much on things that are said publicly and you don't want to create any issues. We've seen in the last few days with Damien Hardwick and John Longmire what happens when coaches can comment about opposition clubs or anything like that. So I'm fortunate in a position at the moment where I'm not beholden to a club, I'm not beholden to the AFL or the players' union or the coaches' union or any other union. I'm just allowed to say whatever I like. And when I saw the... Um, the decision or the, the suggestion that we should ban uh, kicks backwards or not pay marks for kicks backwards. Uh, the thing about that is that it, it's one mechanism the attacking team can use to open up the ground. At the time that it was brought up, the three top teams for kicking the ball backwards were three of the top five for scoring. And the reason for that is they like to shift the angle of play and get away from the density. So Port Adelaide Collingwood, with Geelong will switch or will shift back inside 45 and... Um, and then bring the ball um, through the more dangerous part of the ground or through more space in the ground. Um, So it's really important that we don't legislate things that take away offensive mechanisms um, at all.
0: Yeah, and I was, yeah, I was I was shocked when you, with the numbers when you brought that up as well that the yeah the highest scoring teams are actually the the ones that are kicking backwards the most. Um, it, the last two for you, do just particularly on the weekend. Can we have a tactical look at how and why the best and the worst games this weekend were won and lost? So if we go Richmond and Swans first, that was the, the most boring. I'd I'd say the worst game of the weekend, and then Carlton versus Bulldog. Can you explain why they were won and lost?
1: We'll be back after a quick break. Richmond-Sydney game was an interesting game tactically, not an exciting game, not one that anyone's going to go and uh, out an order or watch back. It's not going to pop up on Fox Foxquay in five years' time as one of the greats. But, but what happened a lot in that game was that Richmond traditionally will bring a forward up to their stoppages. So what they like to do is bring Kane Lambert up as a forward. He'll sit um, generally at the back of a stoppage, so behind the rucks and a throw-in. And Dustin Martin from the front as a midfielder will just spit forward Um, So it's a way of getting Dusty away from his tag. He's obviously really dangerous when he runs forward. Um, And Richmond, in general play, like to bring their high half forwards right up the ground, turn you around and race you back, because that's their real strength. They've got the best running team across the AFL, the best running profile across the AFL. So Sydney decided we're not going to follow up Lambert or whoever it is as that extra forward. We're going to sit back and hold our our back six. What they decided to do was um, bring their fat side winger, so the winger on the corridor side came in and he picked up that Richmond forward that left a Richmond wingman way out in space in the corridor and Sydney sent a forward up to pick him up so that meant that there was a free Sydney defender at one end and a free Richmond defender at the other end and that's primarily how the game was played for the first three quarters what Sydney also have done traditionally very well and did well again um, on Sunday was their midfield got back to support really well so you had this mix where the Sydney midfield's getting back to support in defence. The Richmond half-forwards are getting up the ground, so there's a bit of a crossover there. And Sydney are ending up with one, two, three spare defenders dropping off their men, handing them over to midfielders, essentially, to Sydney, and then sitting behind the ball. So suddenly we've got um, three extra Sydney players behind the ball and Richmond are just getting those repeat entries where they're kicking it back into lots of numbers. So that's what made for such an ugly game. At three-quarter time... Um, Dimmer dropped the sixth forward coming up pulled his sixth forwards back a bit more tried to keep even numbers but still those Sydney midfielders were getting back picking up a high half forward for Richmond and allowing Mills or Lloyd to drop off and create that plus one or plus two behind the ball so that was the tactical explanation for what was happening a lot in that game and I, I do feel for both teams in that with the training that they're allowed to do at the moment they're only allowed one session a week where you can do contact and work as a full group and that will mean that that one session will be more of a match play or a tackling practice or more of a physical session. I don't think they're getting a lot of opportunities to move the ball as an 18 against even just say eight defenders, um, just to practice some decision-making, some timing of your movement across the three lines. They're doing a lot of work obviously in their small groups of eight, which is for health reasons and absolutely necessary, but it does create a, an offensive um, flow and effect. I think of, a lot of time just struggling with offensive connection as a result. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and the, the the Carlton Bulldogs game which was the probably the most exciting or appealing game of the, of the weekend.
1: Yeah, really enjoyable game to watch, the Carlton Bulldogs game. And I know the score blew out a little bit in the last quarter. There were six goals to nothing maybe in the last quarter. But I thought what Carlton did really well is as soon as the ball left the area, they were really active. You could see they were up and about right from the start of the game. They really dominated from centre bounce. I think they were 5-1 centre bounce in the first quarter, which gave them really good field position and got them rolling for the day. But from a ball, movements, ball movement perspective, what they really did well is they pulled the trigger on those kicks on the 45 back inside and, um, knowing a bit about David T, having worked with him at Adelaide, and get on well with him, he's he, he does like to bring the forwards up and then create that sort of paddock out the back and reset back into space. And um, I thought they did that really well um, throughout the game. So when you see you know, Levi Casbolt, who's not an elite kick by any means, but takes an in market half back, looks inside, pulls the trigger, um, they get the overlap handballs coming from behind, and I think that that instance Mitch McGovern ended up kicking a goal from just inside fifty. Uh, It was really, really good good play to watch and uh, I really like where Carlton's going. I said it a lot on radio um, earlier this week. Uh, I'm a big fan of the way that they've built this list, Carlton, and the way they're playing and if we can get more teams that are taking the game on and playing with that mentality, um, then it'll be better for the league.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And just the last one um, from me, Rob, the, for the average footy fan who would like to, to start learning more about the tactical side of the game or that, those kind of things, what sort of themes and details can we look out for in this Thursday's game um, between the Cats and the Pies?
1: So a lot of what I do, um, whether I'm watching a game off TV or particularly if I'm watching behind goals footage or even I've done it when I've gone and watched local footy as well, um, I'm always looking to see where the number distribution is. So looking to see if there's an extra coming up to a stoppage or an extra sitting behind the ball, how that's being generated and then what the flow effects are. So um, for me, that's my starting point in any game to look at how the numbers are being um, distributed would generally like to hold their six forwards ahead of the ball. So we know that Geelong are a really good intercepting defence. Um, I reckon Collingwood will hold their six forwards back, try and keep it really accountable. At the other end, Geelong can be a, a little bit more flexible with what they do with their forwards. Um, they may bring an extra up at the stoppage at times, just depending on how the game's going. Um, but what you're looking for is when you're watching it just as a neutral, I'd be looking for what teams are, are trying to do and whether they're actually able to execute it. So, We know that Collingwood last week against Hawthorne were a little bit more direct with the ball. They, against Essendon the previous week, they went a bit more sideways backwards. They're a high-possession team in general, but they were going a bit more sideways. Against Hawthorne, you saw them take the ball forward a bit more aggressively. The challenge will be if Collingwood's forwards get lost too far up the ground, and Collingwood are trying to take the ball forward and they're kicking to Blitzhavs dropping off or Taylor dropping off the intercept, uh, that's giving Geelong exactly what they want. So I think that's one of the core elements we need to watch for Um, in this week's game.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I need a tip for this one. Also because my mate, he is leading the tipping uh, by one over me and he goes for the pies. So he's definitely tipping the pies. Is there any (laughs) chance the Cats are going to win this one? I can get one over
1: him? It's a (laughs) 50-50 bet this one. It's a real 50-50 game. So you can take the Cats with uh, as much confidence as you'd be taking the pies with. This year is the hardest year to pick. I mean, the the results have been incredible. Um, We obviously have the issue with neutral grounds as well and Mm -hmm. how teams are handling that. I think Geelong is one team that have gone a little bit under the radar at the moment. You know, they've historically been very good for the, the 23 weeks of the 22-round and away season, and then they've struggled a bit in finals in recent years. A slightly shorter season with a mature group that knows how they're playing all on the same page. It might benefit them in the long run. They haven't had to travel too much yet until now that they're in the, the game in Sydney and now they're in the hub um, in Perth. I think Geelong might end up being a team that comes pretty good through the back half of this year.
0: Yeah, nice. That's good enough for me. I'm tipping the cats. Thanks, Rob. Um, <laughs> on the on the podcast, mate, before I let you go, we like to know a little bit more about the personalities of our guests. So do you mind if we end with uh, 10 quick questions about yourself?
1: Yep, go for it.
0: All right, beautiful. All right, your favorite food?
1: Um, chocolate. The massive chocolate head. Yep,
0: <laughs> love it. Favorite movie?
1: Goodfellas. Yes, that, yes,
0: brilliant. That's yep. my second. Godfather's number one, Goodfellas second. Love it. Perfect. Um, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be?
1: Anywhere that you could go outside a bit more freely at the moment would be nice, but um, I, do like, um, I do like New York. I'm a big fan oh, of New York.
0: Nice. Uh, beach or the bush?
1: Beach for me. Mm-hmm.
0: Are you a morning or a night person?
1: More a morning person now. I was always a night person. The last couple of years, I've become a morning person. But having a puppy that likes to wake me up at you know five thirty six am is probably contributing to that as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Was that mostly you you're working for coaching as well? We staying up late and doing that stuff, or was that all during the day?
1: Yeah, a little bit more of um, staying up late with that. Yeah, particularly when you, you have a game say on a Friday night, get home at eleven thirty, mm-hmm. quarter to twelve. You're still wide awake. Yeah. Um, you've probably had too many coffees and, and too many lollies in the coach's box and sit down and review the first half of the game and go to bed at two or three in the morning. So um was more of a night person yeah. then, but more of a morning person now.
0: Yeah. Uh, what is your dream job?
1: Dream job? I love, obviously, I've got the collection of guitars. Um, if I could play the guitar uh, professionally, that would be great. If I could sing, which I can't, um, <laughs> that would be nice to go with it. But yeah, I, I would love to be a musician.
0: Yeah. Uh, who's the favourite player you, you've worked with? Oh,
1: it's hard to narrow it down. It's, there's plenty across the <laughs> clubs. But I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down to so Essendon, where yeah. I was most recently. Horatio yeah. um, Fantasia. Yeah. Um, just, a, just a lovely, lovely person. Just a beautiful, beautiful person. And yeah, a great footballer, but more importantly, a great guy. Um, the sort of guy that shows great care and empathy for all his teammates. Um, very genuine person. And yeah, I really like Horatio. I spent a lot of time with him. And Sean McKern in Essendon as well, who I spent time with at Adelaide. Uh, pretty close to as well.
0: Yeah, awesome. Are you a phone call or a text person?
1: More a text person, I reckon. Yeah, yeah it's just clicking yeah. out different texts to people and more and more now on WhatsApp, yep. a lot on the WhatsApp groups,
0: so um, yeah, more of that. Nice. Uh, Maccas or Hungry Jacks? Hungry Jacks. Yeah? Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what's the go-to meal?
1: I haven't had for a while, but I'm more just a classic sort of whopper, you sort of whopper meal, but I always like the Hungry Jacks fries. That was what yeah. always got me over the line. A bit of extra salt in them. So nice. I love a, yeah, I love fries. So <laughs> nice. I asked uh, Rowan Connolly.
0: Obsessed. I asked Rowan Connolly the same question last week, and he went Hungry Jacks, and he went the Whopper as well.
1: There, there you go.
0: Yep. <laughs> uh, who inspires you?
1: Uh, look, I I like so I really like music outside of footy, and um, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. Mm. And um, I found uh, so I love his music, but when you hear him speak about different things and his his mindset, his mentality, and sort of where he got his inspiration from and his creativity from. Um, I I found that quite inspiring for me as well. So uh, a lot of his music is about telling a story and um, he can tell probably stories about your own life better than you can tell them. That's why he's such a genius. Um, But a bit of I tried to relate it back to what I've done with a footy sense and a bit of that is telling a story as well about how a team's going to play or what we're trying to do or what's the journey that we're on as a group. That's a bit of what coaching is. It's storytelling and Um, providing that inspiration and and creating that common goal and um, getting everyone to buy into it. So, yeah, that's that's where I sort of really like um, Bruce's music and, yeah, I find that quite inspirational.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Uh, That was awesome, Rob. Uh, Thanks. You've given us a real great insight into the the mind of a tactical genius and uh, a real taste of how we can view the game in a different light. So uh, I really can't thank you enough, mate. Uh, Yeah, thanks for joining us today.
1: Awesome. Thanks, James. Appreciate
0: the chat. All right, mate. I'll uh, chat soon. Thank you. There you go, Rob Harding. What a, what a chat. I loved it. I was very excited. I might have sounded a little bit starstruck there, but I was excited to have a coach and an and opposition analyst here to, to explain the tactics and what he does um, to get a better look on the game and, and what we should be looking out for was, was fantastic. My, you know, my dream when I was younger, I always dreamed of being a footy player, Like obviously like so many of us, and thought if I couldn't do that, I dreamed of being a coach. And if I couldn't do that, uh, then I guess I dreamed to, you know, have my own podcast called The Gym Session and sit in my study with a mic during lockdown and talk to people who actually succeeded. So there you go, both of us live in the dream.